0: We'll take our Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. i going to finish the chapter. As you're turning, I want to ask you, how much do you know about drafts? Football season just started up, which if you like football, it's one of the nice things about the end of summer. Every year, though, football teams and teams from other sports, they draft players. There's a pool of new players, mostly from colleges, and each of the teams take turns selecting players to to join their team. The whole function of these drafts is to call skilled players to fulfill a specific purpose on a team. Sometimes they'll draft a kicker because they need someone who can kick. Sometimes they'll draft a quarterback because they need someone who can throw, and so on. Everyone is called for a purpose. In addition to sports, the military has drafted people. The draft in America ended in 1973, but the government still reserves the right to reinstate it. Unlike sports teams, most people don't really want to be drafted by the military, but they share a similar function. The military drafts people to fulfill a specific purpose. Some are needed as pilots, as gunners, as medics, as drivers, and so on. Everyone is called for a purpose. What happens, though, when people don't want to live up to the purpose for which they were called. If a guy drafted to be the star quarterback, but he tells his coach, "I, I don't really want to do that anymore. I want to play defense. What do you think his coach is going to tell him? He's going to say, too bad. We didn't call you onto this team to be a defensive player. We called you to be a quarterback. And you need to live up to that calling if you want to remain on the team. And the same goes for soldiers. The military doesn't call you to relax under the sun. They call you to serve. So what do you make of the soldier who is drafted but refuses to serve? During the Vietnam War, for example, people would try and dodge the draft for various reasons. The government would would punish them for this. Men were called called for a purpose, and they were expected to live up to that purpose. Along these lines, though, consider Christians. In a similar manner, Christians are called. Christians are are drafted. God drafts believers. He calls them to himself to be saved. And likewise, that call comes with a purpose. Everyone is called for for a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, our purpose in our calling in Christ, it's not to go to heaven. It's not really the purpose. It's It's a result. It's a good thing. But there's a more direct purpose. And what is that? God's purpose in calling you is so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean we should all start growing beards and wear sandals? Of course not. We're talking about the perfect character of Jesus. Jesus displayed for us perfectly everything God wants man to be. So when God calls you into his kingdom, he's calling you to to become like Christ, to be like your Savior. The purpose of your calling is to be like your Lord and Savior. Several times Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. He wasn't talking about being a tour guide. He was telling people what is involved in and required for salvation. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus, and that is akin to following Jesus. And To a lot of people, though, this sounds like a good deal. Jesus was a nice guy. So, so trying to be like Jesus, that doesn't sound too bad. They sign up. They start calling themselves Christians. They, they start going to a church. They, they say they believe in Jesus. They sign up. And they're, they're happy. They're excited because finally things are going to start going good in their life because God is on their side. After a little bit of time, though, they discover that things aren't all going their way. This whole Christianity thing is not working out like they thought it would. I mean, shouldn't they be wealthier by now? Shouldn't they be healthier by now, now that they're Christians? Why why are they still facing troubles in life? Shouldn't God take care of his own people better than this? And then something major happens. They get news that they have a a life-threatening disease. They get laid off at work. They can't make their house payments. They're going to be forced to foreclose. A loved one passes away. Life definitely is not going as planned. They aren't getting the bargain out of Christianity that they thought they would. And so they cash out. They, They stop going to church. They stop calling themselves Christians and they're left with just a bitter taste in their mouth. And believe it or not, Jesus spoke about such people. He predicted that Many would come to and leave the faith in this manner. I told a parable about some seeds and a sower. And some of those seeds were sown on, a, on the rocky places where they didn't have too much soil, but immediately they, they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But then the sun rose and started to shine on them, and they were scorched because they had no roots, and they withered away. His part of the parable depicts false believers who are initially attracted to Christianity for various reasons. Now, at first, they seemingly accept the message with joy. But when suffering comes, especially because of the faith, they're out of there. That's not what they signed up for. They just wanted a nice life, and they thought Jesus was their ticket to a nice life. Isn't that what a lot of people out there are preaching today? Jesus is your ticket to your best life now. And Tragically, though, these people never understood the gospel and they never understood what they were called for. They never got the purpose behind their supposed calling. When God truly calls you, he's calling you to become like Christ and that's in every way. Think about this. What, what did Jesus say? John, or Luke 9.23. He said, If anyone wishes... To come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. And what does this mean? Jesus is saying that if you want what he offers, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, salvation, eternal life, if you want that, then you have to be unconditionally committed to him. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying you have to be sold out to him. All in, fully on board with with following him. Such that you will follow him no matter what. That's the type of faith relationship that saves. Some people, though, they don't realize what this includes. Jesus tells you that to be his disciple, you have to take up your cross daily and then follow him. But where do you think... Jesus was headed with his cross to a place of of peace and joy or to a place of suffering. You see, even Jesus himself had to encounter the cross before the crown, the suffering before the glory. What do you think that means for you? It means the same thing. Just one verse prior to this, when Jesus said this, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by men, and be killed and raised up on the third day. That's where Jesus was headed with his cross. So are you sure you still want to follow him? He's not interested in casual converts. But if you realize that what he has is better than anything this world has, and that he himself is more desirable than than anything this world affords, your answer is still going to be yes. If you have a true faith, a genuine faith, you're you're still going to follow him. Where else are you going to go? Jesus is the only path to salvation. He's the only door to forgiveness. He's the only gateway to eternal life. It's either him or or nothing. So you choose him. That, That needs to be your response. That's the type of faith response that God blesses and really meets with salvation. Why are we talking about this? Well, because it's important. It separates true believers from false believers. And more directly, this is what our text in 1 Peter this morning is getting at. Peter himself reminds us that just like the athlete, just like the soldier... We too are called, we're drafted by God for a purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2, just start with verse 21. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Let's this one verse here. He says, For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose is he talking about? I'll remind you of the context here. We've been making our way through 1 Peter. And recently, he's been talking about a, a controversial topic, at least today. It's submission. God has been instructing us here in this passage beforehand that we need to be submitting ourselves to our authorities, whether that, that's the government or our superiors or bosses, whomever. God calls us to submit even when we're treated harshly and unjustly. Look back at verse 19. He says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience, toward God a person bears up under sorrows, when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Our calling is to be like Christ. At times, that will intersect suffering. And when it does, God's desire is for us to do what is right and then to endure. Now, these verses, they're hard to swallow for some people. When they hear this, they immediately start thinking, you know, is there a loophole? Is there a way out? Is there an exception? When we're treated poorly or unjustly, the last thing we want to do is submit and endure. We want to get the person back. We want revenge. We want to, to pay them back. But as Peter continues on in this chapter, he, he doesn't fill the page with exceptions or, or loopholes or ways out. Rather, he tells us to endure and he encourages us to embrace his teaching by pointing us to Christ. John Calvin said of this passage quote, "Nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly to suffer. but when we turn our eyes to the Son of God, this bitterness is mitigated. For who would refuse to follow him? As he goes before us. End quote. You've been called for this purpose, to follow Jesus, even if that leads you to unjust suffering and you are to endure through it. If you don't like this, then remember Jesus. Jesus suffered. He suffered unjustly, but he patiently endured. He did so for you both to save you and to provide an example for you. That's something you need to remember. And this is what Peter brings to our attention. Again, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose, for or rather since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. First, he motivates us by saying that Christ also suffered for you. This is referring to the death of Christ. Peter often refers to Christ's death as Christ's sufferings trying to relate it to our sufferings and emphatic in this verse are the words for you. Christ also suffered for you. he didn't just die. he died for you. he was your substitute sacrifice. The preposition for here it's actually closer to the word over our word over he died over you, you could say. It pictures Christ almost. Curling over us, trying to shield us from harm. I remember when I was in high school, we visited. We got to go to Italy, which was nice, and we went to Pompeii, which, if you don't know, that was an ancient city, ancient Roman city that was destroyed by a volcano. And when when the when the volcano erupted, it sent this massive firestorm through the city, and then the city was blanketed by by well over 20 feet of ash and pumice stone, and just totally wiped off the face of the earth. It buried and lost and forgotten about until around 1750 when it was found and they excavated it. And and they show you the excavation, of course. And while excavating, they, they found that the ash actually preserved people in the exact position in which they were hiding from the volcano. I remember seeing these people whom they excavated and there is seemingly this mother kind of curled over her child, trying to save her child from the ash. I know that that's, of course, tragic. This is what Jesus did for us in purchasing our salvation He shielded us. Only that, Jesus has the power to actually shield us, He has the power to protect us. Verse 21. Jesus died for you. He suffered for you. And then he left you an example for you to follow in his steps. I love this, this last part here. There's two great pictures in this text. First is this word for example. You see the word example in verse 21? Jesus left you an example to follow. The word example means underwriting. It was used of of the pattern children would use to trace letters. They would take this pattern. They would put it under a sheet of paper and then they would trace their letters over it. And that's a perfect example for Christ's example. He's our pattern. We're to, to trace over his life. We're trying to try to follow him as closely as possible. He's our example, and we are to. It says also, follow in his steps. See that, the end of the verse? Here Peter switches from the image of a pattern to the image of a guide. Jesus is like a guide leaving behind footprints, and we are to follow along in his footprints. Of course, we can't fill his shoes like a child following his father in the snow. Our feet are too small. We can't. We can't fit, and our stride is too short. We we can't really match his his steps. We cannot perfectly follow Jesus. But what Peter is talking about here is not perfection. It's walking the same direction. To follow him is to share his destiny, his destination. It is to stay on course. It is to go where he has gone. And that's what God wants. This is Christ, verse 21, our Savior and our example. Indeed, as Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If suffering was his fate, it's going to be yours as well. When we encounter his sufferings, though, we are to look to him, remember him, and endure like Him. Like I said, these two aspects of Christ's sufferings are presented here in verse 21 to encourage us in our calling. And for this reason, Peter, he takes these and he runs with them in verses 22 through 25. In the remainder of this, this passage, he expands on them, explaining further Christ's example and Christ's suffering for us. And all of this is done to help us on our way in following him so so far the time we have left we're going to stick with peter's train of thought and develop further these sufferings of christ so from verses 22 through 25 now let me show you these two aspects of the sufferings of jesus two aspects of the sufferings of jesus in order to encourage you to endure suffering like him even when it is unjust Two aspects of the suffering of Jesus in order to encourage you to endure suffering like him, even when it is unjust. And the first aspect is this, the exemplary sufferings of Christ. That's first, the exemplary sufferings of Christ. Peter begins by developing further the example Jesus left behind for us. He's going to flesh that out, his example. And in verses 22 and 23, he's going to paint the negative and then the positive portrait of Christ. And so we're going to start with this. Number one, what he did not do. It's the negative example of Christ. What he did not do. And we'll start again at verse 22. Talking about Christ. And it says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Four actions are mentioned here which Jesus abstained from, what he did not do. Four things. First, he committed no sin. Straight from verse 22, he committed no sin. The sinlessness of Jesus is attested to really all throughout the New Testament. Sin, it's, it's really doing anything that is displeasing to God, and Jesus never did that. John 8:29. he himself said, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. In 1 John 3, 5, in him there is no sin. He was sinless. Even Christ's own accusers eventually broke down and confessed his innocence. Pilate, remember what he said? I, I find no guilt in this man. Even Judas eventually broke down and cried out. I have betrayed innocent blood. People knew he was innocent. Have you ever been busted for doing something you didn't do? Maybe, maybe you got a speeding ticket and you really weren't speeding. Now, seriously, you were, you were driving the speed limit, you still get pulled over, you get the ticket. And when, when that happens, it makes you so angry. Because now you've got to pay for something you didn't do. I mean, how unjust. You've got to pay for it. But at that moment, do you stop and think about all those times where you you actually were speeding but just didn't get caught? Probably not, but but it's true. See, that's the difference between us and Jesus. See, you may be innocent here and there from time to time. Yeah, you may be innocent. But overall, in the long run, we're all far from innocent. We've all sinned. And we deserve anything that comes to us. But but not Jesus. He never sinned. He never fell short. Therefore, his suffering was completely, absolutely unjust. He truly he really didn't deserve an ounce of it. Of all the people who ever had a reason to get upset and rebel against their suffering, their unjust treatment, Jesus has to top that list. I mean, don't you agree? But he didn't. He patiently endured it. Do you see the magnitude of that now? He stayed on the cross. Just think about that. He stayed on the cross. Now, what an example of enduring unjust suffering. Second, Peter writes that in addition to this, verse 22, no deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. If you haven't picked up on it, Peter is referencing Isaiah 53 here. Which, if you don't know that, that's a prophecy in the Old Testament, pointing forward, looking forward to the Messiah, who would come as the, as the what? The suffering servant. This Messiah would be God's servant who would suffer for God's people. And that, that was Christ. That's precisely what Jesus did. While, and while enduring, there was no deceit found in his mouth. And some people say, you know, the eyes are the window to the heart. That's not true. The mouth is the window to the heart. Everything that comes out of your mouth came directly from your heart, your, your inner man. And that's exactly what Christ himself taught. Since though Jesus had no sin in his heart, he had no sin in his speech. James, by the way, tells us that's a mark of perfection. If any man is able to speak perfectly, he's a perfect man. James 3, 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Of course, none of us are like that. But Jesus was. He was perfect. He never stumbled in his speech. He refused even to deceive. that's talking about being cunning, sly, deceptive. You know what that means. Now think about it. On trial, Jesus could have have talked his way out of it. He, He could have lied. He could have... You know, bent the truth. He could have defended himself. He could have used deception and just cunningness to to get out of there, but he didn't. No deceit was found in him. And very similar to this, the third action Jesus did not do from verse twenty-three, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Here, Peter is channeling Isaiah fifty-three seven now, which says this about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And that's exactly what Christ did or, or did not do. During his ministry, Jesus was called a devil, a Samaritan, a glutton, a drunkard, a blasphemer, a demoniac, a deceiver, and more. And then during his trial and crucifixion, he was mocked and reviled like never before. But he never once reviled in return. He never once sinned in his speech trying trying to get back at these people. If only we could be like this. I think the first way we fall is with our speech. But this was this is really a fitting example for the ancient Roman slaves. Whom Peter was talking to just before, like we studied last week, slaves back then had no rights. They had no power. They were at the mercy of their masters. So if they were treated poorly, there was nothing they could do about it physically. All they had was their words, and that's why back then slaves had the reputation of being crafty, deceptive, and slanderous. It was their only avenue of revenge. They would curse their masters behind their backs, even act deceptively to to hurt their businesses. But but Christ's example here, really for all of us, speaks against that. He, He had the power of speech. He could have said something. He even could have just spoken his tormentors out of existence with a word. But he didn't. He refrained his speech, and more specifically, he refused to revile in return. And then lastly, from verse 23, while suffering, he uttered no threats. When someone causes you to suffer and you don't have the power to get back at them, your last resort is to threaten. You just threaten people. I'll, I'll get you for this. I'll, I'll get back at you. Just you wait. I'm going to sue you. Something like that. You're, you're trying to cause them anxiety and fear. You're subtly trying to get back at them for harming you with your words but even this Jesus never resorted to this and he could have made some legitimate threats too he could have said God's going to judge you for this that'd be legitimate but he didn't even do that during the crucifixion Jesus was spat upon hit in the face beaten with fists slapped Beaten in the head with a rod, stripped, subjected to a crown of thorns, digging into his scalp, whipped, lashed, had to carry his cross, then nailed to it. And that, that was just the beginning of his sufferings. At least threaten them. That's what I'm thinking. Jesus, at least threaten them. At least say, like, God's going to get you for this at least say something and promise to get back at them. He didn't do it. His example was better than that. He wasn't going to wrongly respond. He wasn't going to to sin or deceive, revile or threaten. As we reflect on Christ's sufferings, remember, Peter's not bringing this up just for you to observe, but for you to imitate. That's the point here. So just think, how are you being unjustly treated in the world? Maybe in the past, maybe in the present. How are you being made to suffer? Are you being persecuted for the faith? At work? At home? Are you feeling the pressure that comes with calling yourself a follower of Jesus? Maybe you have a relative who pokes fun at you every time you talk about the church. Or maybe you have a coworker who just really doesn't like you because of your faith and your values. Whatever. When these things happen, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? And the point we're making so far is you need to learn what not to do from the example of Jesus. His suffering was, was infinitely worse than yours. Yet he refused to sin or deceive revile, or threaten, you need to do the same. As much as you, you want to lash out and get back at them, you've been called to be like Christ even in his patient enduring of suffering. Let me read a verse for you. You don't have to turn here, but just listen to Matthew 538 39. You know the verse. You have heard that it was said, Jesus is speaking, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And I think for some people, these are the hardest verses in the Bible. I mean, even it even sounds un-American. Like that's not what we do here. <laughs> But the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, I know for some of you, it makes you uncomfortable. You don't like it. But Jesus lives up to this standard, and this is what is set before you. Restrain your tongues and your actions in obedience to God and in imitation of Jesus. That's what we're being called to do here, but, but we're not done. It's not, it's not enough. It's not enough simply to refrain from sin when going through trials. You actually have to do more. Jesus did more. And so not only should you follow what Jesus did not do, now we're going to go on the flip side, you should also follow what Jesus did do. And this, in fact, was his secret to his right response, what he did do positively. What is it? Well, secondly now from verse 23, what he did do. Look back at verse 22. We'll start again. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Entrusting himself, present tense, just continually kept on entrusting himself to God. This is the attitude that you need to endure. Don't depend on yourself. Don't depend on others. Depend on God. To entrust here means to hand over. When a criminal wants to give up, what do they do? They have to hand themselves over to the police. They're, they're entrusting themselves to the authority and care of the police. Far from causing you anxiety, though, when you hand yourself over to God... It should bring you great peace. Because God is good. And, verse 23, He judges righteously. God is perfectly holy and just. His judgments are no different. That means God's going to right all wrongs. He will right all wrongs. He'll take care of things. When you're wronged, what do you want? You want justice. You usually want to take it yourself, but leave that to God. He will judge in the end, and he's going to get it right. He's going to get it right. So you just need to trust him. This is just like Psalm 73. Turn there with me, if you would. Psalm 73. Have you ever had the question, why do the wicked prosper? You ever wonder about that? Why do the wicked prosper prosper and why do the righteous seemingly suffer? If you wonder that, Psalm 73 is your psalm. Okay, remember this, Psalm 73. That's my why do the wicked prosper Psalm. Because the psalmist has that question. He's wondering, what's going on? He's looking around him. He's trying to follow God, trying to do what's right, but the wicked around him are prospering. Why are the wicked prospering? Why are the righteous suffering? Why are the wicked persecuting the righteous? Why are they winning? It seems like they're winning. Why are the, the wicked winning? Now, what's going on here? Then he remembers something. He remembers that God is still on the throne and he judges Righteously. God is going to right all the wrongs. The wicked, they prosper for a millisecond in the grand scheme of eternity. They'll be judged. And so he comes to this realization and this conclusion, putting things in this eternal perspective. Psalm 73, just look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I talking about the, the prosperity of the wicked. He's like, I don't get it. It's troublesome. Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. He started bringing God into the picture. It's like, oh yeah. (laughs) No duh. I perceived their end. What is it? Verse 18. Surely you, God, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to Destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. That's their end. They'll be judged. It's not something we need to necessarily delight in. We should have compassion on the lost. But the point here is, look, God will righteously judge. He will get it right. Vengeance belongs to God. He will repay, Romans 12, 19. You, you don't worry about it. It's not for you to worry about. You don't repay evil with evil. You repay evil with good. Endure the unjust treatment, just like Jesus did. And do it by entrusting yourself to God. That, that's what this looks like. Let your burning anger toward those who have wronged you just simmer down. Only then will you be able to, James 1, 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's the only way to actually be joyful through sufferings when you're trusting God. Believe that God is good and in control. When you lash back, you're doubting God. But instead, walk in the footsteps of Jesus here. When unjust suffering comes, do not sin with your words or with your actions Instead, entrust yourself to God. He will care for you eternally, and he will right all wrongs. This is the encouraging power of Christ's example. It's never disappointing to stop and consider and remember the example of Jesus. But we're not quite done. Why don't you turn back to 1 Peter. His death on the cross, it was way more than just an example. It's more an example. It, it, was a, it was a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice for us. And this is what Peter points us to now. First, we saw the exemplary suffering, sufferings of Jesus as an encouragement to endure our sufferings. Secondly, now, let me point you to this the redemptive sufferings of Jesus, the redemptive sufferings. Look at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Here we're reminded of something we can't bear to forget. Not even for a day that Jesus died for you. Not just as an example he died and he bore our sins in his body on the cross. From the very beginning, that was his purpose. Matthew 1.21, the angel visits. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24, the, the phrase, our sins, stands emphatically at, at the front of the sentence in the Greek. Our sins... He he took up. He bore. Remember, he had no sins of his own. He wasn't on that cross paying for anything of his own. He was paying for our sins. And to to bear up here means to carry up to a high place. It's it's a ritual term. Talking about bringing up your offering, your sacrifice. The altar was usually elevated so you would bring up your sacrifice. Only that here, there's no animal. Jesus is the sacrifice. And here, the sins are not his own. They are ours, born in his body. Whenever you break the law, there's a penalty. If you speed, there's a penalty. You rob a bank, there's a penalty. You drive drunk, there is a penalty. Sin, likewise, has a penalty. Now, what is sin? Sin is when you break God's laws, it's when you do something displeasing to him. And think about this just a single sin comes with an infinite penalty because God is infinitely holy. The penalty for sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death in hell. That's a big problem for us because we were born with sin. We were born sinners and we sin a lot. And we have a lot. But that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He he was dealing with that sin problem. Jesus came, fully God, fully man, in order to to die on that cross and to pay the penalty for our sins, and he did. He paid for all of it. He, He then rose from the grave, and now by trusting in him and his work on the cross, we can receive what he offers, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, eternal life, salvation, committing to Jesus, to believe in him, to, to follow him for life, wherever he goes, it's the most significant decision you'll make in your life. But but it's worth it because it comes with new life and eternal life. I don't know, maybe you've all heard this a million times. But if you're tired of hearing it, then you, you truly don't appreciate the magnitude of what was done for you. You should never tire... Of hearing it. And you should never forget it. Because if you do, you have no hope. And if you have no hope, you have no chance of enduring those times of unjust suffering. Jesus died on the cross. He became a curse for us, hanging there on the tree. He did so, verse twenty four. For another reason, what does it say? You see that? So that statement? He did so, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, his death didn't just set us free from the penalty of sin. It also set us free from the power of sin in our lives right now. He did not die just to forgive us so that we could go on, you know, living in our sin, carefree. He died so that we would move away from sin itself. The phrase here, die to sin. And Peter doesn't use a normal word for death. He uses a word that means, you know, have no part in, to to be separated from. He's saying that Jesus died so that you would become totally Alienated from sin, that you would have nothing to do with it. Instead, he says, you are to live to righteousness, come alive to that which is right, live in a manner pleasing to God. How often do you need this reminder? Let me ask you, how often do you fall short of this? Often? Often enough? Then you need this reminder. Often enough, I need this reminder daily. We need it every day that that Christ died not just to save us, but that so, but so that we would right now be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Jesus saved us to move us away from sin. Sometimes though, we go back. That should grieve you. It should make you want to want to stay away from your sins and to go back to Christ. Stop. Feeding and tolerating the sin in your life. Rather, remember Christ, his death, and therefore, die to sin, live to righteousness. Peter finishes this verse. He says, for by his wounds you were healed. It's not talking about Christ's physical wounds, but spiritual wounds caused by bearing sin. Not talking about physical healing, but spiritual, whereby we have new life. Jesus heals our spiritual life. He cures our soul. The ancient Christian Theodoret said, a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healing. And just, just thinking of the one who, who died for you like this, it, it should break you down. It should make you fall to your knees. This is the man who said to you, follow me. Who we're talking about he said follow me so what are you gonna do will you follow him believe that he's worthy of following so even if this means that you have to patiently endure some suffering in life to follow him follow him it's worth it he's worth it and briefly now let's finish this up one more verse here in this chapter verse 25. And it's a final encouragement, and it's good. Jesus died for us in the past, but his concern for us is not only in the past. It is present. Look at verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He's talking about sheep here. Sheep, Sheep are just about the most helpless animals on the planet. And so they form a fitting illustration for mankind. They have absolutely no defense mechanism. Everything about that? They've got nothing. No camouflage, no speed, no agility, no strength. They don't even taste bad. They also have no intelligence. And sheep have been known to, to wander off, to get lost, to fall off cliffs. They will literally walk into a lion's den. It is for this reason, though, that God intervened to save his lost sheep because we were so helpless. We all were straying from God like sheep, but he turned us to him. He gathered us like a shepherd gathers gathers his sheep. Indeed, it's because of him that now we have returned to the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Christ. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, the good shepherd Lays down his life for the sheep. What do shepherds do? They feed the sheep. They guide them, lead them, protect them, gather them. Overall, one word, they they care for the sheep. That's what shepherds do. They care for the sheep. And Jesus cares for us right now. That's to comfort you. He cares for you right now. He's also, verse 25, the guardian of our souls. I love this word, the word for guardian episkopos in the Greek. It's from the root word skopos. We get the word what? Scope from it. A scope is something we use to see other things better with like a telescope, a microscope. The prefix epi intensifies this word. So episkopos or episkopos, it's talking about someone who sees everything. They have vision overall. Nothing escapes their sight. It's talking about an overseer. A guardian, one who supervises and cares for his subjects, and that's Jesus. He's your guardian. He's your overseer. He's keeping watch over your soul. And that's a comfort as well. Christ's past work motivates us. His present work comforts us in our affliction. Of all people, Jesus knows what it's like to endure harsh and unjust treatment. He knows And if you're suffering in life right now, know that Jesus cares for you and watches over you as your shepherd and guardian. And he calls you to endure. You have to look to him as your only hope. Nothing is worse in life than suffering pain for no reason. And it's for this reason that unbelievers have no hope in this life. Because sooner or later, guess what? Suffering comes. Sooner or later, they suffer. But they have no answer for it. They have no response. Nothing good comes out of it. Their life proves ultimately futile. They don't know. And they can't access Romans 8.28. That God has a good plan. And he's working out, even suffering for good, for those who, who love Christ and who follow him. That is perhaps the hardest biblical truth to embrace. But embrace it. You must, and rightly respond, you must. For you have been called for this purpose. To endure unjust suffering while not sinning, but doing what is right. Looking to Jesus, your example and sacrifice. I want to close our time this morning by pointing you to Job. So humor humor me, if you will, and turn to Job chapter 1. One last little passage here. If you would just turn along to Job chapter 1 and 2. The first two chapters of Job, they tell this remarkable story of two people who suffered like never before. That's right, two people. The first person was Job. Job suffered more than, than any man in his time, and even maybe today. He, he lost, what happened to him? He lost all of his possessions, like that, all of his wealth. Then, all at once, he lost all ten of his children. We can't even picture that. All ten, at once. And then, finally, he lost his personal health. He's overcome with extreme affliction and sickness, It's a level of suffering we can't even imagine. You ever notice this, though, that in Job 1 and 2, there's a second person who suffered nearly as much as Job? Do you know who it is? It's Job's wife. Think about that. She, too, lost all of her possessions overnight. She lost all of her wealth, everything she had. I mean, they were together. She lost it all. And she, too, lost. All ten of her children overnight. Imagine that being a mother. Can you do that? The only thing she didn't have was that personal sickness, as far as we know. But Job's wife also was experiencing unspeakable suffering right alongside her husband. There's two people there. Yet, they didn't respond to their suffering in the same way. And I want to finish our time by highlighting these two responses. And what a contrast. Let's start with Job's wife. There was Job. Picture this. He's sitting on a pile of ashes. He's got nothing left. He's covered in painful boils, and he's sitting there scraping off his skin with a piece of pottery. Just what a miserable picture of suffering. That's pathetic. How did his wife respond to all this? Look actually at chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. That was her response. That's what she was prepared to do. Just curse God and die. Forget it. I'm done. I'm cashing out. Job had a different response. He suffered. He suffered more. But look how he responded in verse 10 of chapter 2. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And get this, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Indeed, when Job heard the news that his ten children had died, look at this response. Chapter 1, verse 20. Go back there. Chapter 1. Verse twenty. This is right after hearing that his ten children had died. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Verse twenty. And he said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there." The Lord has, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, here it is again, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The world today doesn't get this. They, they don't get this response. They say, curse God and die. Job didn't say this. Why not? Because he knew suffering is not a detour in your life. It's not an accident. He may not have understood the plan, the cause, but he knew that God was in control and he simply trusted that. He refused to sin over it, either with his actions or his lips, and he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. I want a picture for us to follow. Job, really second only to Jesus in his example here. Suffering is part of God's plan for your life just like it was part of God's plan for Job's life, just like it was part of God's plan for Christ's life. You've been called for this purpose. You may not understand it all. That's okay. You can still rightly respond, and it's so important that you do. God calls you not to sin in speech, in deed, but to entrust yourself to God just like jesus did and he will care for you so i want you to leave here this morning whether you're suffering now or not maybe you're not believe remembering the savior remember what he did for you remember his example the most important thing is that you give your life to him and god will care for you as you follow in his footsteps father we bow before you and we do so we we trust you we, we entrust ourselves our care our lives our future to you it's only illusion if we think we have them in our own control in the first place you are on the throne and we trust that and we rest assured in that because you are good and you do judge righteously so we thank you for that care for us Watch over us as we know you will. Give us the peace that comes knowing that we have a shepherd and we have a guardian watching over our souls. Lord Christ, we entrust our lives to you as well. We follow you wherever you go. We we, we will pursue behind you. I pray for those here, though, who, who have not committed to follow you for life no matter what. I pray they would see that the futility and the hopelessness of that way, it leads to nothing but death. And there is no hope, there is no peace, there is no purpose in their suffering. They really have nothing. Show them the beauty and and the desirableness of Christ, how much better he is than everything in this world. And may they choose to follow him. Only then will they know the peace and the joy that comes from forgiveness and salvation. May today be the day of salvation for some as well, Lord. But we commit our time to you, we commit our lives to you, Bless us as we go from here. May we remember Christ, our Savior, and our example. In your name we pray. Amen.